This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The new electronic health record system for the Department of Veterans Affairs is running into some data issues. The Government Accountability Office has released a report after reviewing data management plans for the system. The VA is working to roll out a new health record system to replace the legacy program. The VA has concurred with GAO's recommendations to establish performance measures and use a register to engage relevant stakeholders. OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, is permitting special hiring authorities to implement the new infrastructure law. Federal agencies will need to hire for additional roles to carry out the legislation. OPM has released a talent surge playbook to help with the special hiring authorization. The agency is also surveying staffing needs for other departments and has launched a special landing page for the bill on usajobs.gov. The Department of Defense has filled a new position to lead data and artificial intelligence initiatives. DOD's CIO John Sherman will serve as acting chief digital and AI officer until there's a permanent appointee. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks issued a memo Tuesday announcing the position, which will oversee data, analytics and AI for the department. Nearly half of service members who served in the military since 9-11 say that transitioning to civilian life is difficult. The Army offers resources to support veterans struggling to assimilate. Retired Lieutenant General Raymond Mason served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Army Logistics. He's currently the Director for Army Emergency Relief. It's the Army's official nonprofit organization. General, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Mimi, and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. What are the biggest challenges for, for transitioning from the military to civilian life? Well, it is a tough transition. In fact, I did it in 2014 after 35 years in the Army. You know, when you're in the military, your life is pretty structured. You get moved around. The military tells you where, to, where you're going to serve, what kind of job you're going to be in. But as you step into the civilian life, it's kind of an unknown. Where do you want to live? Where are the job opportunities? Uh, what kind of job do you want to go into? So those are all unknowns. And so the Army and the other services have put in place a transition program to help us help military members do that. So I wanted to ask you about the program called the Army Career Skills Program. Tell us about that. You know, that started in 2015 as the Army specifically, but I know the other services have similar kind of programs to help those soldiers transition. Even if they've served three years or 30 years, they're stepping out of the civilian life and we want that transition to go well. They've served their nation and we have an obligation to help them reintegrate back into the civilian life. And so part of this is uh, the skills they learn in the army could transition over to a civilian job. And then we also perhaps teach them new skills and we'll talk a bit more about that. So I wanted to ask you about your organization, which is Army Emergency Relief. How does that uh, work with the Career Skills Program to provide support for soldiers? Well, AER, Army Emergency Relief, has been around 80, about 80 years. And we're a nonprofit, as you said early on. We do, we've done about $2 billion in assistance uh, to about 4 million members of the Army team in our history. So we have a multitude of different programs. This one we started this past year. We did a pilot. 
And the whole idea was to help these soldiers in their last 180 days in the military, whether they're retiring or ETSing, finishing their service, and help them with uh, defray some of the cost of doing this career skills program, whether it's uniforms or tools or a resume, a multitude of different things. And these are all grants, by the way, which means soldiers don't have to pay this money back. So what specific skills would you say uh, service members are uniquely able to provide to employers as value added? Well, I think number one, you have the discipline that a, the military person brings to the job. Uh, you know, they've grown up in an environment where they understand requirements, mission focused, they're disciplined. Uh, they're going to do all those things that an employer is looking for. So that's kind of a given. But then there's a whole series of other specific skills in the military that do translate well in the civilian world, whether it's communication kinds of skills, maintenance, so maybe a diesel repairman, uh, could be programming, computer programming, uh, could be different kinds of trades, uh, HVAC, welding, uh, IT technology is a big part of this, cybersecurity, all those things, just about anything you can think of in the commercial world, we also do in the military. So what of the successes you've seen so far in, in your organization in this particular program? Yeah, we're kind of early in this. Uh, just in the short time, really two months, we've provided about 50 grants to the tune of about $40,000 uh, to these soldiers that are transitioning. And again, uh, it could be helping them with uh, tools, uniforms, travel expenses. So they might be at a place like Fort Hood with the company they're going to work for is in Seattle, Washington. And so they got to travel there, that cost, stay in the hotels, things of that nature. And that's the cost that we're trying to help them with. Again, it's a shock absorber as they make that transition. And how is Army Emergency Relief funded? Is it private donations or does it come from the Army's budget? Yeah, there's really three sources. Number one, a significant portion of our donations come from active duty soldiers every year retired soldiers as well. And then there's American citizens and corporations, all donations. We don't get any federal dollars at all. We're like, uh, you know, most nonprofits, uh, the, the, all the money comes from, uh, from really generous donors. And what are you hoping to accomplish still in the future? You said that this pr program in particular is still quite young. What else are you trying to do? Well, we've committed $3 million to this program. Uh, and, and again, this is all about soldier for life. So the Army started that program a couple of years back because we recognize that, you know, military duty uh, puts a lot of impact on families, a lot of impact on soldiers. And so we have an obligation and duty to help with that transition. But also, as these military members go out into the civilian community, they are great spokesmen for the military. If their service and their transition went well, if they felt like they were treated correctly, um, they're going to be great recruiters for the military. So there's, there's that part of it as well. Do you think that the, the Army and other services are doing a good enough job in helping soldiers transition? Yeah, I think we're doing a pretty reasonable job. We work very closely with the Department of the Army, Sergeant Major of the Army on this particular program. Uh, we can always do more, and I know the, the, the leadership of all the services is looking for additional things that can happen. Again, we, in the Army, we came up with a soldier for life concept. You know, the Marines have once a Marine, always a Marine. Great concept, and it's true. And so, uh, you know, the Army's always looking at ways we can help with this you know, this moment in your life, this huge strategic uh, inflection point where you're transitioning out. 
All right. Well, General Mason, nice talking to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks, Mimi. Coming next, some military members are still hesitant to get the COVID vaccine. Straight ahead on Government Matters, addressing vaccine hesitancy now and for future public health crises. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. A large majority of military service members have received the COVID vaccine after a department-wide mandate, but some members are still hesitant to get the shot. Air Force Colonel Doug Jackson is at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's writing about vaccine hesitancy in the military. Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. Pleasure to be here. All right, so give us some numbers about how the vaccine mandate is actually going in the military. So overall, the vaccine campaign's been highly effective in the active duty force. Over 98% of nearly 1.4 million active duty U.S. service members are fully vaccinated. And of that, less than 2% that are not yet fully vaccinated, the majority of those are awaiting the results of requests for religious accommodation or medical or administrative exemptions. So the services have begun discharging members who refuse to get vaccinated and who haven't put in for uh, an exemption. Uh, update us on what's happening with that. So that is correct. All the services now, as the deadlines for active duty members have passed, have begun uh, discharges where appropriate and where all requests for exemption or accommodation have, have been denied. What we know about the individuals uh, who are tending to be in that group of folks uh, is first and foremost, it tends to be very junior service members. Uh, for example, the Air Force was the first service to discharge any members for vaccine resistance, and all 27 of that first group were in their first six years of service. We also know from early studies, when the vaccine was still uh, optional but highly encouraged, that there are certain demographic areas within the United States military where hesitancy uh, tends to persist a bit more. So specifically from April of 2021, we know that non-Hispanic black members of the military are 28% less likely to initiate vaccination. And female service members were 10% less likely to initiate vaccination. And also, so it's about younger, it's about race, it's about gender. Do we know, do we have any insight as to why they don't want to get vaccinated? Yeah, so the why is the tough question, right? But, but in my research, and this is from surveying public available information, as well as my own experience as a commander during the first 18 months of the pandemic, and with interviews with more than a dozen uh, other commanders from all other services, we can broadly bin categories for the rationale of hesitancy, I think, into three areas. The first and the most commonly discussed is misinformation. You hear that throughout the US government and throughout public health officials' dialogue. It's significant and it's a well-proven rationale. But there is definitely more to hesitancy. And if we don't look beyond, deeper, we may find policy remedies uh, are incomplete to address it. So a second rationale, category rationale that I would describe is, is just a general sense of mistrust. This is a well-documented phenomenon throughout the public. Uh, and although it's less prevalent in the military, it is still a real matter. 
it's not necessarily that those who are vaccine hesitant in the military are distrustful of their military chain of command, but rather of institutions writ large. And then the final category for rationale is what I describe as the personalization of risk. And this is particularly relevant, I think, to the younger service members who are rejecting the vaccine. Individual decisions are often hinged on the comparison of the costs and the risks of action versus those of inaction. And we simply haven't done enough to convince those resistant younger members that the costs are, are significant. The good news is one's personal assessment of risk can be changed and influenced by externalities. You know, before we get into how to how to change people's minds, you know, kind of in the general population, some vaccine hesitancy comes from, you know, I don't like the government telling me what to do, right? So does that apply in the military? Because that's, I mean, military service members follow orders. Yeah, you bet. And, and so I, uh, important to note that this is from my own experience and again from the research I've done. I'm not speaking for the Department of Defense writ large, my own perspective. However, I think it's important that American men and women know that their sons and daughters who are serving in uniform, by all indications, are not making political decisions to avoid or reject the vaccine, but rather they're making personal ones. The U.S. military has a history of small pockets of hesitancy for many vaccine campaigns from the 18th century with Washington's army and smallpox to the late 20th century and the early 21st century with the anthrax vaccine to today. So while you may find individual members who are making politically motivated decisions, overwhelmingly the data suggests that is not the case for the majority of the vaccine hesitant in the military. All right, so have you done some work on kind of how to get um, service members to overcome that hesitancy? I have done some research on that and, and some ideas that I've come up with. I've br broadly bend them into to three tranches of recommendations. The first, and it's, this is consistent with nearly every public health campaign, uh, but would be to adjust our strategic communication effort. Specifically, knowing that there are particular demographics and age groups that are more likely we should target our efforts towards those uh, demographic areas. And in our messaging, I think it's important because it has been such a challenging and evolving uh, pandemic, I think it's important to emphasize fallibility and, and recognize that our initial prescriptions will not always be accurate, uh, but will go a long ways towards enhancing the trust of the members of the military if we are willing to accept that and emphasize it early on. And when we've made a mistake or the, the guidance has changed, we should be willing to adjust rapidly on the fly. Thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Up next, veterans are at higher risk of experiencing food insecurity than the general population. Still ahead on Government Matters, how the government can support those individuals. We'll be right back. Research indicates that working-age veterans have a 7.4% higher risk of, of experiencing food insecurity compared to non-veterans. That statistic is even higher for disabled vets. Caitlin Welch is director for the Global Food Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. Good morning. 
So let's talk first about the factors that cause higher food insecurity for vets. What are those factors? Yeah, um, thanks again for mentioning the report that you that you noted, which was published about last year. It was largest and most uh, nationally representative study of food insecurity in the veteran community, showing that veterans have a 7.4% greater risk of food insecurity than non-veterans. The most significant contributor to that statistic is the higher rates of uh, physical and mental health challenges um, and, and disability among veterans. And age was another factor, with younger vets being more likely to be food insecure than older vets. Why is that? Yeah, that might be a bit counterintuitive, but um, but one of the factors there is that uh, the transition from active duty service into veteran status um, is a period of particular vulnerability for, um, for, for for new veterans. So that's um, that's one of the main reasons that we see higher rates of food insecurity among the younger veteran population. And and why is that specifically though? Is it because they have a hard time adjusting to civilian life? Is it that they have a hard time finding a job? What's going on there? Yeah, I think I think it's a number of factors. I think it's um, it's simply a transition time to finding um, finding steady employment. I think it's um, often the case that veterans um, are supporting entire families um, and, uh, and and can't find employment that is sufficient to meet the economic needs of entire families. Um, so that's those are some of the reasons why you see higher rates of, uh, of food insecurity among the new veterans. And women are more likely to be food insecure than men, which I thought was surprising. Yeah, that's something that is is also true in the population in general. Um, uh, consistently, you see that women are um, are more likely to be food insecure and are move, more food insecure than men across the board. That's also true in the veteran population. One of the reasons for that among vets in particular is that women um, don't advance as far as men do in um, in the armed services. And so when they um, <clears throat> when, uh, that affects the employment that they can uh, secure once they uh, enter civilian life. Um, and then of course, economic status, is one of the main factors that contributes to food security in our uh, across the country. And when more women are food insecure, that will affect their children and families and, and have a ripple effect as well. Absolutely, yeah, for, for, for their, own <clears throat> their own children, yeah, um, it's a huge problem. What have the trends been, Caitlin? Has food insecurity among vets been going down or up over the past years? That's a great question because it's actually something that we've only started to recently measure. It was not until 2017 that the Department of Veterans Affairs Veterans Health Administration started to survey veterans about their food security status. Um, it was a really simple survey. It was one question. They tweaked that survey last year, um, but really it's only um, it's only the past five years or so that we've even been measuring this. Uh, and even then, it's only veterans that are availing themselves of services at the VA, and not and, and not the veterans who the VA can't capture. So it's uh, it, it's a, something that we're only recently studying. And do we have enough data to really see a trend over those five years? Um, uh, probably not. Um, it's something that I, I think it, it's quite interesting. Um, uh, a, a few years ago, the Washington Post put out a, a piece where they said that food insecurity among veterans has long flown under the policy radar. So it really has been under the radar for uh, for policymakers and for researchers. Um, we don't necessarily see trends in terms of um, food insecurity going up or down, but what we do see is um, is how trends in the composition of the military is affecting food insecurity among veterans. So, for example, um, today there are higher um, uh, higher numbers of women serving in the armed services, people of color in the armed services, and again, women have higher rates of food insecurity writ large. 
um, people of color have higher rates of food insecurity writ large. So when you have higher proportions of those populations among veterans, you're going to see higher food insecurity among veterans generally. So what federal resources are available for these veterans? You, you'd mentioned the VA. Yeah, yep. Um, so the Department of Veterans Affairs screens veterans for food insecurity. Um, a few years ago, Feeding America set up a pilot program with the VA um, to establish food pantries at, um, at several VA sites. So that's one source. Um, but that, that, that certainly is not <laughs> enough to meet the, the, the problems of veterans across the board. Um, so there are federal programs like SNAP, SNAP and WIC, which um, SNAP is food stamps, WIC is food stamps specifically for women, infants, and children. Um, you have regional programs. For example, Purdue University set up a, uh, a program to address the needs of veterans in rural areas in the Midwest. So you have some nationwide programs, you have some regional programs, um, which are going um, some distance to meet the challenges of veterans, but not the whole way. Do you think it's enough, Caitlin? What, what would you recommend changing? Yeah, I don't think it's enough. And, and, and I think that um, this comes back to your initial point, Mimi, about food insecurity among disabled veterans. I think what needs to happen is um, an examination of who is most food insecurity among the veteran population. And again, it is um, disabled vets. It's also female veterans, veterans of color. Um, and I think that there needs to be a specific targeting of those populations to make sure that these resources are, meet, are, are, are reaching them. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Caitlin, for being on the program. And thank you for your work on this for, for the veterans. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for spotlighting this. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.